Hello, and thank you for joining our Journal Club in Cardiology podcast. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge, and are part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance. In this episode, Dr. Thomas Maddox and Dr. Kim Williams will discuss special considerations in cardiology and COVID-19. Dr. Maddox is a professor in the Department of Cardiology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. And Dr. Williams is the James B. Herrick Professor and the Chief of the Division of Cardiology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. He is also the Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CVD. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's begin our discussion. So Dr. Maddox and Dr. Williams, thank you for joining me today. Um, None of us are immune to COVID-19, but for people with pre-existing conditions or comorbidities, the virus can hit them particularly hard. This is especially true for individuals already dealing with cardiovascular disease, and a lot has been written about coagulopathy in COVID-19 patients. In fact, the uh, Italian Working Group for Atherosclerosis, Thrombosis, and Vascular Biology said that disseminant intravascular coagulation is seen as a possible complication for all COVID-19 patients. Um, So for individuals already with cardiovascular disease or who may be on antiplatelet or anticoagulant therapy, these coagulation issues pose potential for further complications from and risk for COVID-19. So let's dive right into some questions. Dr. Maddox, can you address this issue of what might may be causing this coagulopathy in this patient population? That's a good question, and I think you're right that we've seen <clears throat> worldwide, in reality, the uh, the higher occurrence of thrombotic events, and have certainly looked at that with concern and tried to figure out how can we uh, effectively approach both diagnostics and and therapeutics for it. I think, in as much as we know at this point in the pandemic, which although it felt like it's been going on forever, it's actually been going on for a very short period of time, that we believe this is not dissimilar from the higher rates of thrombosis that we see in our acutely ill ICU-type populations with other kinds of severe illness, sepsis, or other generalized inflammatory conditions. And so as best as we understand, it's that increased inflammatory state, which then activates a lot of the pro-thrombotic mechanisms that our bodies have that has been contributing to this higher incidence of thrombosis we've seen. So. Um, It is true that people with underlying cardiovascular disease tend to have worse outcomes in COVID. They are more likely to require higher level care. They're more likely to get severe COVID. That's the same population that's likely to develop some of these thrombotic complications. So I'm not sure, and time will tell as the science evolves, if it is the cardiovascular disease itself that is contributing to the thrombotic risk or if it's just the fact that that potentiates a more severe inflammatory state, which then in turn leads to the higher degree of thrombosis. 
But at this point in the in the disease and the pandemic, um, I think that's the underlying biologic hypothesis. So it's difficult to tell which has come first, the chicken or the egg in this virus. Um, is it possible that some of these patients did have underlying cardiovascular disease that just wasn't diagnosed at the point or is a mix? It just sounds like it's a real mix. I think it is a mix. I, I do think that, you know, one thing that is very true is cardiovascular disease is the most prevalent disease out there. And we know that um, the populations that are most likely to develop really symptomatic severe COVID tend to be older. And we know that the prevalence of cardiovascular disease, whether or not it's been diagnosed, is goes higher as patients age. So what it may be is that as folks uh, unfortunately catch COVID and develop uh, that disease, that it unmasks previously undiagnosed cardiovascular disease. Just the math would suggest that's likely to occur. And so I think what we're seeing is somebody comes in, severe COVID, respiratory symptoms, and then AFib, or then chest pain, or some other new to them manifestation of cardiovascular disease. And so then, unfortunately, we're now managing two issues at the same time. Right. Dr. Williams, anything to add? Well, it's uh, a difficult area, and everyone has used the, the aphorism that we're trying to fly the plane while we're still building it. And I think the area of anticoagulation and inflammation, certainly um, that saying applies. We really do need to have uh, good outcome trials. And unfortunately, when you look at uh, an Italian experience or experience in just the city of Chicago, for example, uh, the people who are doing uh, well or not doing well, uh, using a variety of anticoagulants, including um, some people who come in on you know, full doses of warfarin, those who were uh, get, getting low molecular weight heparin as part of a protocol, those who were switched to um, uh, oral anticoagulant uh, that's not vitamin K uh, inhibiting. Uh, we are, uh, we really have a dearth of comparative data uh, to know what is the right thing to do for, for everyone. Uh, we do know uh, along the line of your question of, um, is it really underlying disease? You know, when we look at the cardiovascular disease that uh, folk that everyone has identified as a bad plus respiratory disease, as a risk factor for having a bad outcome, being more likely to be uh, admitted to ICU, more ventilation, more mortality, those factors actually have underlying conditions. And so the smoking uh, that uh, leads to lung disease and the uh, obesity, uh, hyperlipidemia, diabetes and hypertension that lead to cardiac disease. And so it's difficult to um, sort of ferret out the baseline characteristics from the baseline uh, or diseases versus the risk factors that cause those diseases, all of which end up with a worse outcome. Yeah, um, it's mind boggling. I mean, especially for a lay person like myself. Um, for patients who develop a milder form of COVID, um, the Italian working group had talked about managing the mild disease at home, that they don't have to go to the, to the hospital. But if they're on um, anticoagulation therapy, they also recommended that these patients probably should be switched to a direct oral anticoagulant. Dr. Maddox, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it was an interesting recommendation. Um, and as best as I could divine the rationale behind it, it seemed to be based a little bit more in um, a pragmatic point of view as opposed to purely a biologic one. Um, which is a very a reasonable approach. I think the idea was that for patients who are currently on vitamin K antagonists like warfarin, 
that if it turned out that their COVID disease worsened, that they do need to come in for hospitalization and maybe even get a procedure associated with that. It gets complicated with warfarin on board and that it does take time for that to wear off. Um, it does interact with other meds, of course. And one of the real advantages of DOAX is that they can uh, get out of the system a lot more quickly um, and they don't have uh, some of the other medication interactions. So I think it was it's a little bit of a pragmatic, you know, just in case kind of strategy to introduce the idea about thinking of switching to it. Uh, we know in other sorts uh, situations when patients who maybe struggled to maintain a good time and therapeutic range with warfarin, when they have switched to DOAC, assuming that you sort of um, follow the guidelines about the time of stopping the warfarin and then starting the DOAC and base that um, on the INR levels, that it does appear safe and continues to be effective for whatever underlying thrombotic risk you're trying to, to mitigate. So, you know, I, th I think it's ultimately up to the, to the individual clinician and the patient in front of them. Um, I don't think it's an unsafe strategy. Um, and I think there's some pra pragmatic reasons behind it. I was going to ask that about safety. Um, what are some recommendations that clinicians should be telling their patients to watch for? I mean, because obviously one of the problems with COVID is people can't come in to the office or, or are reticent to go into the office for regular checkups and blood work. Um, so are there any precautions or any things that they should be mindful of in, in a case like that? Well, I, I would weigh in that uh, if we're, let's sort of bifurcate the question into, you know, you were talking about the people who are staying at home, first of all, mm -hmm. and uh, they've got their baseline medications. And if it happens to be an anticoagulant, you know, this is, it is difficult to know what's going to happen. Many patients at day seven, eight, 10, will start to have the hypoxia, the pneumonia takes over. And if that does, they're going to come into the hospital. We always want to not have uh, a vitamin K antagonist in a patient who is in intensive care unit, um, just because as uh, Dr. Maddox mentioned, it's just harder to reverse. But more than just the reversal, it's the, the drug interactions, uh, which can be really more difficult some of the times with the vitamin K antagonist. So it would be that, sort of supports their idea of, of switching over. Uh, what do we look for? Um, I'm telling all my patients to uh, buy their, you know, it's, it used to be something that nobody had, but now pretty much everyone has an oxygen saturation monitor, a pulse ox. It costs $13 at the drugstore. And um, if they start getting an oxygen saturation less than 95, um, they really should be really coming in and probably going to their local emergency room to at least get a chest x-ray if this represented a significant change. Um, and that may mean a pneumonia. It may mean that they've had a clot and they now are either intrapulmonary or, or an embolism. Uh, the one curiosity in this area, there are publications saying that the COVID patients tend to tolerate their hypoxia um, more than other diseases. Strange. And I don't know that I've seen a mechanism for that, um, but I'm definitely telling them to check uh, objectively uh, check the oxygen saturation at home. Dr. Maddox, anything to add? No, I, I think I think the safety uh, precautions that we should be handing out to patients largely around the monitoring for bleeding and that any changes to the anticoagulation should be done in conjunction with your care team. You know, I certainly wouldn't advise a patient to independently start um, switching themselves 
from warfarin to DOAC, for example, or even making dose adjustments to warfarin, even if they feel like there's a change in their clinical status. Uh, we do have point of care INR checkers at this point. That may make sense to have for somebody who wants to avoid coming into a hospital or a clinic to minimize their exposure. And if they are under the guidance of their care team needing to switch to a DOAC, having that point of care information is probably going to be something that'll be helpful to do it safely. What about antiplatelet therapy? Where does aspirin fit in or does it? I can certainly say that I agree with everything that's being published that about the importance um, within at least three months. And you know, we, we do have uh, constantly changing uh, dual antiplatelet therapy guidelines for or constant updating based on more modern information, the, the newer generation for the patients who have had a percutaneous intervention. So the stents are getting a little bit less uh, thrombogenic as time goes on. Um, but still, if a person has had an acute coronary syndrome or they're diabetic, we try to do it for a year. And so uh, these people are going to, as you point out, they are going to be subject to getting COVID infection just like anyone else. And it's important for everyone to recognize the importance of maintaining the, the antiplatelet status. It, it may not be, I mean, the data on a dual antiplatelet therapy or antiplatelet therapy for atrial fibrillation is really not that great. Uh, it, it has been shown in with when you have atrial fibrillation, which is another reason that we try to do a lot of anticoagulation in these patients. Um, it really doesn't cover it unless you have a very, very low risk, in which case you might wonder, do you need those things at all for atrial fibrillation? Um, we don't use it as much for, um, even though there is a little bit of data for, for prophylaxis, we don't use it for um, deep venous thrombosis either. So for most of the causes that we're using full anticoagulation, uh, we wouldn't want to try to substitute, as far as I'm aware, with, um, with antiplatelet drugs. And, but when we need those antiplatelet drugs, I don't think those unnecessarily should change. I'd be interested in what Dr. Maddox has to say about that. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I think there's generally a concern for people with confirmed cardiovascular disease that absent some extraordinary reason, we shouldn't interrupt aspirin therapy at the, very, at the very minimum. And to be honest, there aren't many procedures, even to the point of uh, major surgery, that encounter an enormous safety risk with aspirin on board. So I know that certainly our cardiac surgeons are quite comfortable in doing that. Where it gets a little bit more complicated are these so-called PCY12 inhibitors. And um, you know, if they are on a vulnerable period shortly after a PCI or an ACS, where there is a benefit to having those meds on board, yet we need to think about the potential bleeding side effect, given what they may be undergoing for their COVID treatment. We've got to think a little bit more carefully about the pros and cons for that. And that, that ultimately drives down to the individual procedure that's under consideration and its risks accordingly. I will say there has been some somewhat theoretical but reasonable concern about some of the antivirals that have been used for COVID therapies and their interaction with clopidogrel and ticagrelor. Um, and so there have been some recommendations, and you saw this in the Italian statement too, that you preferentially switch over to prasigrel. Um, and that is fine. It's important to realize the press scroll is a black box warning for patients with a prior uh, stroke or TIA. So you'd have to make sure that that's not a complicating comorbidity. But I don't think it's an unreasonable recommendation uh, given that potential medication interaction. That's good. So let's talk about DOAX for a while. Uh, there was a trial, it was a small trial of Apixaban that said that it's effective and it's safe um, for use uh, during covid after warfarin therapy. 
So are you using, I mean, is this kind of like becoming the general practice? Through, I mean, you know, what is general practice during COVID? I mean, as, as you said, it, this is very new. Um, but are more patients going on DOAC, such as a Pixaban, um, during this in hospital or out? I think it's important to not get overly fixated on, is it COVID that's driving that decision about a Pixaban? And more, is it one of the uh, thrombotic uh, comorbidities that we would be treating with the DOAC independent of COVID status. So by far the most common reason for that is AFib. Second most common is a VTE. And I think my, my practice and a lot of my colleagues actually has been to have a DOAC first type of strategy um, simply because it does have better therapeutics and it actually has a more, it has a better bleeding profile. Um, and we think it's just a more consistent therapeutic level of anticoagulation in the system. Um, which uh, which is both effective and safe. So, you know, the study was interesting. It was retrospective. Uh, the patients weren't randomized to the treatment. So basically, I think people that would have been treated with a Pixaban were treated with a Pixaban, and lo and behold, the clinical judgment about the safety of that held up, which is always good to see. But I, I don't know that it substantially changes my practice, and I haven't seen huge shifts and my colleagues practice either about when we use it. I will say it is the most common DOAC that I use just because of its um, its safety and benefit that we've seen uh, in the prior DOAC trials. Agree completely. Anything else to add, Dr. Williams? So, I know I think uh, Dr. Maddox covered it really well. You know, if you look at all the world's experience, uh, you realize that they are safer. And uh, the one thing that's always interesting that many people don't know about uh, DOACs is that they don't impair factor seven. Now, everybody really knows that, but they don't, um, may not know what they, the big consequence of that uh, is that we learned years ago. That is uh, factor seven gets activated uh, by uh, tissue factor to um, try to stop bleeding. And the biggest place in the body for tissue factor is actually the brain. And so people used to say, I don't know if it's really true, but the rumor was that, you know, if you get uh, a intracranial hemorrhage on warfarin, you get a grapefruit and you do it on a DOAC, you get a grape. And so even though they may count the same and the literature does say that you get less intracranial hemorrhage on DOACs, probably because of this, um, but that the long-term outcome is gonna be completely different. And so that's a major advantage that uh, keeps us wanting to use these, these drugs um, as well as the shorter half-life um, the, the safety ratings uh, in terms of overall bleeding and the fact that we do now have uh, uh, for each of the, um, the factor 10A um, inhibitors, we do have a, uh, a reversal agent that we can use uh, with trepidation, albeit because of the increased thrombosis, but we do have uh, something available uh, that can make it uh, even safer if someone's bleeding. Interesting. So, with VTE or AFib, um, if I understand what you both are saying, these are, are treated, I mean, the patients are in the hospital, this may develop, and it almost doesn't matter what caused them, they have them. So it's, it's not that COVID causes a VTA or COVID causes the AFib, but does COVID set up the environment for this to happen more than just in general? So, well, what, well one thing that you have to recognize from the world's literature is that any increase in catecholamine, increase in inflammation, uh, irritates the atrium and is more likely to create atrial fibrillation. So, it um, you know, if someone has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, they're likely to have uh, a higher AFib burden during a COVID illness. Uh, 
and we, but you know, we've known this for years, the person coming in uh, that we get the consult on, they're 93 years old and they have rapid atrial fibrillation. They're coming in from a nursing home. It's because it's a urinary tract infection. And so um, this is something that we we deal with all the time and it really does have to deal with, uh, have to do with the, um, the adrenergic tone that's set up uh, when someone has any kind of infection or sepsis, as well as the inflammatory um, effects directly on the atrium. Mm-hmm. Dr. Maddox? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, it's not that there's not a relationship between COVID, AFib, and VTE, but you could you could substitute out the term COVID with severe acute illness. Yep. And that is what is potentiating everything that, that Dr. Williams just said that kicks off a round of AFib and or VTE. I'm going to pivot here. And, and um, the one thing that has really surfaced during this fight against COVID is uh, just disparity of care. I mean, we know there are people who don't have access to care. There are people who do not have health insurance. Uh, It's really hitting our communities of color much harder than our other communities. There's a lot that we know insofar as, as more comorbidities, but Dr. Williams, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about you know, disparities of care and what is really coming out uh, that, that's been heightened during this pandemic. So yeah, this, this is really, I'm glad you're asking. Uh, this is an area that everyone needs to take stock of um, how everyone's, you know, this is a very popular year to talk about structural racism or institutional racism. Uh, and this is, it just happened to have a disease that turns on all of the above and um, makes the whole system sort of turn on a population that has already been vulnerable. Uh, so if we look at sh- in Chicago, so I'll just kind of make three different uh, issues. Uh, Chicago is still, um, it may not be a uh, much of a racist city as, as it was maybe 30 years ago, but it's still a segregated city. And it turns out that uh, Chicago is the proud, not proud, owner of the largest disparity in uh, life expectancy between neighborhoods in the entire world. That is um, the Inglewood area, south side of Chicago, where I grew up, has a 31-year less life expectancy than uh, the near north side uh, neighborhood of Streeterville. That actually has to do with uh, a lot of issues that are in the community, but it also has to do with the medical care and uh, how often people are accessing it and the quality of the, of the care. And so at Rush, we did a, a, so many, when we saw that initial map of where the deaths were happening in Chicago and it was all over the South side of Chicago, um, you know, I started contacting the folks at the hospitals and some responded, some didn't. And we did a lot of transfers. We did as much as we could to try to get them to a place where uh, if the hospital says, oh, you know, we can't do proning, well, that's a problem uh, if because the major medical centers can. So you do whatever you can do for those people. But so that is our medical system. That's a that's an issue that really needs to be tra- addressed. And it was just it was always there, but it was always under the surface until now. So then let's talk about the the uh, effect on the population themselves. If you have an, uh, areas that are uh, more people with uh, that are in the poverty area, uh, lower household income lower levels of um, higher education, uh, which is true of, our, of these particular zip codes according to our census data. Well, that means that their jobs are going to be the kinds of jobs where you just can't stay home. You're, you have to you know, drive a bus and you have to take care of facilities. And those kinds of uh, work 
uh, workers cannot just sit at home and say, okay, well, I'm not going to give any more of my international lectures by getting on a plane. I'm going to do them all for my living room, which is what happened to me personally. Um, it's a very different kind of thing. You have to be facing the public all the time and you're constantly exposed. And to see, you know, bus drivers, I know some of that was in France, but it's happened everywhere where bus drivers trying to ask people to wear masks are, you know, abused or beaten, that sort of thing. They, you know, our, we have a vulnerable population that can't do much about it. Okay, so let's put that one aside. Then the whole idea of, um, you know, population density. We've looked at that very carefully in Chicago and there, the, the poorer you are, the more likely to, uh, you are to have a much larger population density, which means spacing is not gonna be as easy. Um, and so you, if you put all of these things together uh, and then realize that this is a disease that picks off the vulnerable in terms of cardiovascular risk, and just in a, in a brief minute, I would just pick out the ones that um, we've known for years because we were also in a pandemic of heart disease, leading killer of Americans since 1918. And that Spanish flu in 1918 actually lasted for three years, but only the first year of it was heart disease, not the number one killer of Americans. And it's been number one ever since. And that is because of the risks that we have, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and obesity. Well, it turns out that each of those four put people at risk for having a, a bad outcome with COVID. More uh, admissions to hospital, more admissions to the intensive care unit, more ventilators and more mortality. If you look at all of the data that's been published, obesity is one of the biggest ones. And we, we do have good mechanisms, everything from you know, adipokine release to uh, the effect of, of having more adipocytes on T cells and, uh, and the immunity that you can develop. And so uh, having your immune system impaired by diabetes at the same time that you have a bilipid layer COVID coronavirus that really loves to be inside uh, a fat cell so that it can reproduce itself more, more efficiently, um, that's a bad combination. So then you put on top of that the fact that um, you might've seen the data that statins improve the outcomes uh, well, uh, or have, are associated with better outcomes. Well, that has, it's really simple. People have a lower serum cholesterol. It turns out that the cholesterol molecule um, aids the uh, actual attachment of the coronavirus and the entry of the coronavirus into the cell so that it can reproduce itself. Diabetes has always had uh, given us immune problems and hypertension, it causes vascular damage. And so, you know, that combination of those four are, are set up to have a poor outcome. Um, and I'm sure there are other issues, you know, such as pulmonary disease and the like. Um, but when you look at uh, the, all of the data, and there was a very large American Heart Association experience that was published last, or maybe 10 days ago. There was one in July published from Oshner in New Orleans. And then we had our own analysis at Rush from our Rush database. And all of them, three of them, of them said the same thing, that it is risk, not race that makes people die of COVID. That is the higher numbers of African-Americans, A, it's the number of people who are actually getting the disease, but the odds that you die with the disease are related to the, the risk factors. The biggest uh, one that I saw was the, uh, the um, hazard ratio of 3.68. So 368% higher death rate if you had a body mass index more than 25, not just obese, but being overweight. And so you, we have to look uh, inward at our population and say, what can we do about those risk factors? And of course, you know, my 
experience and my clinical practice says lifestyle is everything. Um, I would say, you know, very proud of the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology 2019 guidelines that attack these exact problems. And if everybody started in March of 2019 and did everything we said, we wouldn't really have this much more morbidity and mortality in the United States. Um, but people didn't, you know, lose all the weight and change their diet and do all the things that we recommended in terms of exercise and lifestyle. Uh, but hopefully, you know, people will still do this. Yes, the vaccines are going to help, but we're still going to have this for a long time. And so I would challenge everyone today to fix the diet, fix the exercise, lose the weight um, and give themselves the chance. So, but that also brings up access to care. I, I mean, if, mm -hmm. if people do not have insurance, if they cannot get to their physicians, um, if they are lower educated, they're not going to necessarily be aware of these guidelines because they're not having regular checkups. They're not getting this, this sort of guidance. You're absolutely right. And that's why uh, at Rush, we go out into the community. Um, I know Rush really likes to do the west side of Chicago, but I grew up on the south side, so I'm always in the south side churches. Uh, we've done uh, screening programs for these exact risk factors. Uh, we call it our heart program, helping everyone assess risk today. Uh, and we've done church interventions where we give them, you know, healthy nutrition for five weeks and then let them see how their cholesterol changed and their blood pressure changed. Um, obviously, we're just one institution and a lot of what we were doing in the community got shut down because of COVID, believe it or not. The kinds of things that were going to stop COVID from hurting people, we couldn't do because of COVID. Um, but I'm hoping that everyone will recognize uh, what's in those guidelines and try everything we can to implement them. And you're absolutely right. We need to improve the access to care and all of the structural issues that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Dr. Maddox, anything to add? No, it's just sobering and, and just sort of underscores, again, the enormity of work we have to do, both as a medical community and as a society, to make sure that we're promoting what we know to be best health practices and then making sure that the ability to do that um, is not stratified by whether or not you have income or where you happen to live or the color of your skin. I'm sad to report that I can empathize with how Dr. Williams describes Chicago and map it to exactly how we describe St. Louis. And folks who've been in St. Louis may know of the term the Del Mar Divide, uh, which is sort of a, a street that divides the north part of our city, which is traditionally uh, poorer um, and, and um, struggles more than, than south of that particular street. Uh, one of the more striking characteristics is the median uh, lifespan of somebody living north of the Del Mar Street um, is 67 years and south it's 85 years. So a, a life expectancy difference of 17 years, um, which you often would expect to only see between first and third world countries, but this is within one city and I'm sure Chicago has similar issues. So it, it gets down to, as, as, uh, as Kim well described, there's a higher likelihood of getting COVID because you have a higher prevalence of essential workers who can't give up their job, higher living situations where it's easier to transmit and get infected by the virus. Once you are infected, it's more likely to become worse because of all the underlying comorbidities and risk factors that have been driving that. And then to your point about access, once you've developed that clinical condition, it's harder to get the care of the highest quality and of, and of the most rapid timing. So I think it, again, underscores the map of issues and suggests to us where we need to continue to push hard to overcome where the failings are in each of those 
links in the chain, if you will, of maintaining and optimizing health. And Dr. Williams, any other points you'd like to make on this? Well, this is, um, it really is an opportunity uh, not to be repetitive, but um, to really take stock in what it is that we are actually uh, trying to accomplish as a country and as a society. Um, that is, when we look at the effects of uh, this institutional or structural racism, it actually affects us all. That is, the tax money that's taking care of the poor people who can't take care of themselves, but we have the EMTALA Act, the Emergency Medical Labor and Treatment Act. No institution that has any federal funding is going to turn away a sick person from the emergency room. Uh, they can go on bypass, but they can't, not if it's available. And so who pays for that care? We all do. And so we, at some point, we have to understand that we're all in this together. And if we, if we treat it as such, um, then we're going to try to support each other. And we wouldn't have these large gaps in um, you know, the number of people in the poverty level and the education systems being poor and having better um, education in the suburbs, well, they would probably do pretty good without it, okay? Uh, but, you know, there, so there, a lot of this has to be addressed. And, and I'm hoping that if anything good, and it's not much good, but if anything good comes out of uh, COVID, it would be the recognition that these are uh, problems that we can't just sweep under the carpet anymore. As the kids say, that we, we would hope that we are now all woke to, <laughs> to understand this. Um, anything else to add about the overall um, conversation we were having about you know, cardiovascular disease in, in, during this pandemic? Um, what questions still are not answered? Well, I, I'll throw out one, and I'm sure I'd love to hear what Dr. Maddox has to say, but uh, I, the one that we're all concerned about is the fact that there seemed to be that huge drop in heart attacks. Well, it wasn't a drop in heart attacks. It was a, it was a drop in people presenting for therapy with their heart attacks and, uh, and, it's, and the fear of coming back and the fear of um, you know, being in an institution and not wanting your tests. And we're hearing it over and over again. And what, if, if I could instill one thing uh, into the public, it would be the recognition that this isn't like March and April. We really do have good data masking helps. And all of the precautions that we're doing really go toward making our, our hospitals and uh, clinics much safer than they probably ever were. And so please don't be afraid to go get your test. Please don't be afraid to, to call in and uh, if you're having some symptoms and try to make an appointment. And if it's something serious like, you know, the chest pain, shortness of breath, you really got to go to the emergency room. And I'm hoping that this... Uh, uh, we'll get to the population. They'll get back to uh, coming to us when they have the critical, uh, critical symptoms and signs. Dr. Maddox. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly endorse that and um, and encourage folks with any any concerning symptom to immediately seek the care they would receive or seek um, in pre-COVID times. I think the other uh, question that is sort of in the front of minds of a lot of us in the cardiology community are long-term effects on the cardiac system after one has recovered from COVID. Uh, there's been some uh, talk out there about so-called long haulers, folks who are having this long tail of residual symptoms after recovering from the acute phase of COVID. Uh, there's been a couple of small studies, one out of Germany and one out of the US that have done some initial imaging in that immediate month or two after COVID recovery. And they've seen some signs of cardiac inflammation. That's been true for patients both with symptoms and without. Um, and it's a little unclear what to make of that. Obviously, it's concerning. 
Um, it's important to realize that we actually don't know what hearts look like after recovery from any kind of acute illness. It's not that we systematically take pictures of the heart. So it may be that this is just how the heart is recovering after any sort of acute insult. But there may be something specific to COVID. There may be something more persistent. And so uh, it will take time to understand it well. But I think we're certainly working hard to follow these patients here at uh, Barnes-Jewish. We have a COVID clinic for folks who continue to have symptoms like shortness of breath or other symptoms that may be related to cardiovascular disease. And as we continue to follow them, do the testing and the monitoring, I think we'll get more, um, more uh, indications about what's going on. So I would say uh, that, that is, uh, that's an important thing to uncover down the road. Excellent. This has been a wonderful conversation, and um, I, I am so happy that you both joined us today. I, I think that we've presented, or you've presented, I've listened, um, some important information for our, our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Good seeing you, Tom. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CVD to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other cardiology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash cardiology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits. Mm-hmm.